If you have your Bibles, if you'll find a small book in the New Testament called the book of Titus, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today, it's Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is one of those big days. It's what I call a crockpot day. It's one of the days that you put some food in the crockpot because, you know, you're going to have family to eat it with you. And, uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of activity that goes along with Easter. It's, it possesses the three staples of holidays in America family, food, and fun. And so there's a lot of things that people like to do with Easter, but I think it's important that we remember that Easter does not revolve around the things that we do to celebrate, but it revolves around what God has done for us. At its heart, foundationally, Easter is a holy day. It's a day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. About 15 years ago, I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, pastoring a church down there. You know, Austin is the capital of Texas, but even beyond that, bigger than that, it's also the barbecue capital of the world, right? Amen? And so I'm in Austin, and this lady asked to speak to me after church. She and her husband had been attending the church for several weeks, and so we went back to my office and talked, and she said, you know, Lash, I I love the church. I enjoy your sermons, my kids enjoy it here. I want to raise my kids here and make this my church. And so I was enjoying the conversation because I always love it whenever someone wants to become a part of the church. But she said, I just have one problem. Like, okay, what's the problem? She said, Jesus, uh, the cross, it's kind of violent. And it seems a little narrow that You know, you guys preach and teach that Jesus is the only way to God. And so I remember she asked me this question. She said, is there any way to be a Christian without the cross part? Is there any way that I can be a part and kind of just get around that? And so I began to explain to her what the essence of Christianity is all about and how Jesus is ultimately... Uh, Jesus' death, his resurrection is ultimately the climactic moment in the salvation history that is unveiled to us in Scripture. And eventually she looked at me and she said, so it sounds kind of like he's the center of the whole thing. I'm like, yep, he's, he's, he's the center of the whole thing. Understand this, the heartbeat of Jesus is the heartbeat of Christianity. If Christ's heart ceases to beat, then Christianity ceases to exist. Now, you still might have churches, but you wouldn't have the essence of what Christianity is all about. You still might have egg hunts and family get-togethers, but without Christ dying and rising again, the vital essence of Christianity is forever lost, and so are we. So today, here's, here's my assignment. It's pretty simple. It's also pretty straightforward. We're going to look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, a passage from the Bible. And my goal is to help you understand a passage of Scripture that will explain to you and explain to me what is the heartbeat of Christianity. So look with me to Titus chapter 3. If you don't have the Bible in front of you, we will have the verses on the screen behind me. The Bible says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
He poured out the Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Now look with me in verse 4 at the beginning there, because we see that the passage begins with an unusual appearance. We see kindness and love making an appearance. Not just any kindness and love, but specifically the kindness and love of God. Now when you drill down into those words, you will discover that the word translated here, kindness, literally means moral excellence, integrity, an altogether goodness about the character of God. There is no corruption in Him. There is no deceit in Him. And this kindness, this integrity, this morality was displayed to us. And then also, there was a love that was displayed. It comes from the Greek word philanthropia. It means a caring, non-selfish love that genuinely desires the well-being of other people. Now, these two things are unusual because we live in a Titus 3.3 world. If you go back to the third verse in the passage of Scripture... It describes the world that we once lived in as unbelievers and we continue to see displayed around us. The Bible says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Now that's the world that we know. Uh, We see this world at school. We see this world uh, at work. We see this world in the streets around us. Uh, You experience it every day whenever you try to get through the red light at 544 and Murphy Road, okay? People detest one another, they're envious, they're malice, they treat one another badly. I mean, that's just something that's part of our natural human makeup. It always is lurking just a little bit beneath the surface. I heard about a family the other day that does an adult Easter egg hunt at their Easter celebration, And what they do is they put lots and lots of money in the Easter eggs. Yeah, some of you are like, sign me up for that, right? So I asked, well, how does it go? And they basically said, well, they, it's horrible. I mean, they, they fight, they shove. Uh, it's like, this is my college fund. Get out of the way, you know. And, and it turns into this, like, free-for-all where the adults of the family are just going at it because they're after the money. Why? Because lurking beneath all of us is this Titus 3.3 nature. And it comes out every now and then, whenever we don't want it to come out. Now Jesus comes into this world and he brings a massive contrast to the world. Instead of foolish, disobedient deception, Jesus brings the kindness and goodness of God. He displays the character, the integrity of who God is. Instead of a universal envy, hate, and conflict with one another, Jesus opens his arms and displays a love that is extended to all people. You see, sin exponentially divides us from one another. But Jesus eternally unites us with one another in him. Well, let's continue in our passage. Look at verse 5. The Bible says he saved us. Now frame those words because this is the thesis, okay? He saved us, and everything that comes beneath this in this verse and the next one ultimately is modifying what it means that 
Jesus saved us, okay? So he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, about six months later, this lady that I had talked to after church one day comes back to me. And she says, Lash, I get it now. I said, what do you get? She said, well, I've been listening to some of your sermons. I've uh, been reading books. And I, I get what it means to be saved. And I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I, I want to be a part of the church still. And so I praise God that a few weeks later, I was able to baptize her. So that brings up an interesting word, saved. What does it mean? To be saved. It's a word that's spoken of over and over again in the New Testament. So let me talk to you a little bit about Salvation 101 and 10 things that you need to know about being saved. And you'll find these 10 things within this passage that we're looking at today. The first is this all of us participate in verse 3. We are all sinners. The Bible teaches us that we all fall short of God's glory. So no matter how good we try to be, there's still a sin nature and there's still sin within us. And you, you understand that. The evidence of that sin, number two, is seen every day. It's seen in the way that we live. It's seen in the darkness that is in the world around us. Just pull up your favorite news site and you'll see the evidence of sin in the world around us every day. There's also the dark evidence of sin found in the reality of death. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. And though we try to ignore it, though we try to think about other things, there is this nagging reality that everybody dies. And so we see the evidence of Titus 3.3 every day. Thirdly, we tend to know that some things are not right. And so we try to do good things. Philanthropic things, things that will somehow show that we really care and somehow show that we're not really as bad as we know we are whenever we're all alone. And so we'll do things like 5K runs for charity, we'll sing about world peace, we'll come to church on Easter Sunday. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Hadn't seen some of you since Christmas, but I'm not bitter. I'm glad you're here, okay? And fourth, though we do these works of righteousness, we still fall short. We're still never good enough. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and the reality that you're a verse 3 person comes up. You're tired, and your children annoy you, and you find yourself reacting in a way that you don't want to react, and you begin to discover that verse 3 is still alive and well within you. So this leads me to number five. God, in His mercy intervenes into our scene so that we may be redeemed. That's what we sing about at Christmas. The silent night, the holy night that God has sent His Son into the world as an act of love, He sends His Son. Number six, what we think about on Good Friday. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for you and for me. You see, the cross was not merely the execution of a poor Jewish man. It was not just an example of truly believing in something to the point of death. But the cross, the scriptures teach, was an atonement. Jesus died making atonement for your sins and mine. He died as a substitute 
for you and me, absorbing God's judgment on sin into himself. But then we come to number seven, why we gather this morning for Easter. You see, death could not contain Christ. He demonstrates his power over sin and death, which the Scriptures teach is the end result of sin. He demonstrates his power over both of those things by rising again. And so here is the good news of Christianity. Salvation is available to you. Salvation is available to you. Through what Christ has done on the cross, you can be spiritually saved. You say, well, how do I be saved? Well, the scriptures say we repent of sin and we place faith in Jesus Christ. So inherent within faith is this idea that I turn from trying to be God myself. I turn from my sins and my rebellion against God, and instead I say, God, I repent of those sins and I desire to follow you. And you place your faith not in how good you can be, but you place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross. And the scriptures say that whenever we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. Now, what happens whenever you get saved? Well, the passage in verse 5 talks about the washing of regeneration. That's a theological word, but let's talk about it, okay? The washing of regeneration. What that word means is a rebirth or a spiritual renovation. Anybody ever seen Chip and Joanna Gaines on television? You know, the folks out of Waco? They take these dilapidated, falling down houses. I mean, they, they, and they sell them to people, okay? And you're like, don't buy that house, okay? But then Chip and Joanna go in, and over a period of time, they renovate the house so that whenever you see it again, it has been completely regenerated. It has been reborn. It has given a new life, if you will. Well, the Scriptures say that in Jesus we are regenerated, that spiritually we are completely renovated, we are reborn, so that when people look at us, they no longer see the old us, but they see the new us, the new me that is in Jesus. And then there is another idea that is conveyed. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit. And a kenosis, a complete change for the better. We are renewed, changed for the better by the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 6. The Bible says, He poured out the Spirit. Is it a little s or a capital S? Okay, y'all still with me? Little s or capital S? Okay, so he pours out the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I have a seven-year-old that whenever we pop popcorn, she loves salt. She's not satisfied with just sprinkling a little bit of salt on top of it. No, she's going to like take the salt shaker and like halfway empty it so that you have a little popcorn with your salt. She's not satisfied with just a little bit of butter on top of the popcorn. If she could, she would deep fry the popcorn and butter, okay? She wants it completely saturated. When it comes to Jesus, 
many are satisfied with just a little sprinkling of him. You want a little bit of Jesus in your life so that there's a taste of Jesus. Whenever you envision a good sermon, it's a TED Talk with a verse attached to the end of it, okay? And so you kind of just want a little sprinkling of Jesus, but verse 6 says, no, that's not what this is all about. Whenever you have been saved, you have been regenerated, and God pours out His Spirit abundantly on you. He saturates you with Himself so that salvation changes you. It changes every aspect of your life and it becomes the worldview, the lens through which you see life. Now don't miss this other part. It comes through Jesus Christ our Savior. Look at verse 6. This salvation, this pouring out of the Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. One of the chief criticisms of Christianity is that it's too narrow. Now, Jesus himself was the one who made it narrow. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, is that broad or is that narrow? I prefer to use the word specific. Jesus was very specific. If you want to know God, I am the one that brings you to God. You cannot know God except for me. Now, for a lot of people, though, that they don't like that. And so they want there to be many ways to God. And they'll say that you just have to have a sincere path. And whatever you're sincere about, you be sincere in that. And that it just leads you to God. But now, let me ask you this question from this perspective. If God can be known, wouldn't it be great if he tells us exactly how he can be known? Wouldn't it be great if he wasn't ambiguous about it? If he said, yeah, I created you and you can know me and you can be my child and you can have my spirit upon you and I will tell you specifically how you can have this. It's going to be through my son, Jesus Christ. Isn't it great that God didn't make us guess, but that God was very specific and clear that if you want to know me, it comes through Jesus Christ. Now, in other areas of our life, we appreciate exactness. We have mathematical truth. When I was in the first grade learning addition and subtraction, you know, the teacher would give me a test and say, 5 plus 5 equals blank. And I would take my pencil out, and I would write as a number 2 pencil, by the way, and I would write 11. And she would take her red ink pen out, and she would make an X there. And she would say, Lash, 5 plus 5 does not equal 11. 5 plus 5 equals 10. I'd say, but I'm so close. I'm only one off. I sincerely believe it's 11. And she would say, you are sincerely wrong. Because there is such a thing as mathematical truth. There is such a thing as biological truth. I am a 40-something-year-old man. I can wish all day to be something else. I can wish to be a 20-something-year-old man. I was born in the 70s. I could wish that I was born in the 1500s. Biologically, I'm a 40-something, okay, 46, 46, you were wondering, weren't you? 46-year-old man, all right? But I look 25, don't I? But I'm still... 46 years old, and I can wish all day to be something else, but that doesn't change the biological reality of who I am. There's also exactness when it comes to natural truth. I can buy myself a Superman shirt, 
And I can go out to the steeple and climb up on the steeple. And I can say to myself, I believe I can fly. And I can jump off the steeple, but I'm not going to fly. I will probably die. Why? Because we understand that there are such a things. There's, there's natural truth, and we have to live within those natural truths. So why can't there be spiritual truth? Why can we not believe that God is real, that God has displayed His kindness to us, His love to us, that God has sent His Son, and that God has very clearly taught us that you can know me and be my child and live with me for all eternity through Jesus Christ, and I will pour out my Spirit upon you through Jesus Christ. Specific, yet also clear. Well, verse 7 says, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Now that word justified is one of the greatest words in all the Bible. Yet here's what I know that most of us do. When we're reading the Bible and we come across that word, we hydroplane right over it because we're not sure exactly what that word means. Justified means that through Christ, God makes a declaration. He declares, the gavel falls, I am not guilty. Now, I have sinned, but through Christ, God declares me not guilty. I have been justified by God through Christ. I had a theological professor in seminary that said that you take that word justified and it's just as if I'd Just as if I'd never sinned, God sees me as innocent in Christ. God direct deposits into my spiritual account the wages that Jesus earned on the cross. Rather than the wages of sin leading to my death, the wages that Jesus earned through His cross and resurrection lead to my life. So instead of death and sin, I receive grace and life. That's what it means to be justified. That's why it's such an amazing word. Let me go back and read verse 7 again to you. So that having been justified, you understanding that now? Justified by grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And so then there's two final thoughts here. When we are justified, we become an heir. We become part of the family. Just as Jesus is seen as the Son of God, we are children of God, and we are heirs to the kingdom of God. We are part of the family. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, He taught us to begin our prayers, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. It merges two amazing ideas. The holiness of God, hallowed be Thy name. The one who created it all, the one who is all-powerful, also invites you and me to come before Him and call Him our Father. Why? Because through Jesus Christ, we become an heir and we have the hope of eternal life. Hope is vital to human existence. You have to have hope. Unfortunately, what many grab a hold of as hope is really just wishful thinking. Or it's short term. We hope for a better tomorrow. We hope that we'll get the promotion at work. We hope that one day we'll graduate. And we hope for these things to come about. 
but ultimately we still have a destination that is common to all. But the hope that Jesus offers goes beyond the grave. It's the hope of eternity. It is the hope that life is not but a mere fleeting gift, but that life can last for all eternity. It's the hope that you have forgiveness for your past, purpose for your present, and eternity ahead with God. It's that hope. One day I'll see my grandma, who passed away whenever my mom was two years of age. It's that hope. That a child that Stacy and I lost in the womb on Christmas Eve several years back is alive with God today. And one day I'll meet that child. It's the hope that drives you through life and sustains you after life. The hope of eternal life. So let me read the passage for you one more time. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out the Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Now one final question, and it's ultimately the question of Easter. Have you ever been saved? Has there ever been a time in your life where you experienced this? When you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Would you all be so kind as to bow your your heads at this point? The band's going to walk forward, but I would ask that you just keep your head bowed for a few moments Have you ever been saved? Has there ever been a time in your life when you trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord? If there hasn't, I want to invite you to make this your moment. The moment when you call out to God for salvation. You say, Lash, well, what do I do? Well, right where you are, just call out to God and admit that you're a sinner. You may say something like this, God, I have done things that are wrong. I have sinned. And I ask your forgiveness. Now I would invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. Placing the totality of you in Him. You might say something like this, God, I place my soul, I place my life in You. I'm believing in Jesus, trusting in Him as my Savior and Lord. And I would invite you to commit your life to following Him. Open your heart and say, God, would you invade me? Would you saturate me with your Spirit? Change me from the inside out so that I'm a new person in Christ. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if today is your day of salvation, I'd like to know. I'd like to be a pastor to you and perhaps talk to you about baptism and how you can grow in your faith. And so right where you're sitting, would you just look up at me if today was your salvation day? Just look up at me right where you're sitting and let me make eye contact with you. Lash, today is my day of salvation. 
and I'm trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. What an incredible way to celebrate Easter by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. As a church, let's all stand together at this time. We're going to sing with the worship band. We're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to give, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's anything I can pray with you about, I'm here at the front to pray with you.